BTW, Joel, Pastor Joel. Now I'm just going to see how many times I can pull that into the message. There's no FOMO with me. I'm done. I'm done. I'm not going to do any more. <clears throat> All right. Well, listen, we are in chapter 3 of the book of Revelation. We have gone through chapter 2 and explored the life and teaching of Jesus to various churches in Revelation chapter 2. We have three churches left. I don't think you want to miss out. If you think you understand what those coming passages are like, you've heard things about them and so forth, I encourage you to come back out as we continue to explore some of the historical realities of these churches and how it shows up in the ministry that Jesus has uh, to these cities and these churches. Let's take a moment to pray and then we'll begin. (coughs) Father, it is with rich gratitude that we come before you. What an honor it is for us as your people to gather around a table and be reminded of the work of Christ on the cross that secures our forgiveness of sin and our place with you in heaven. The cross is the beginning, God, of our relationship with you. It's not the end. And we want to go deeper. And we want to understand more. And we want to grow. And we want to be your holy and pure people. So God, would you push us in new ways? Even today, would you bring conviction to our soul through the power of the Spirit to awaken us, to awaken us to your word to us? That's our hope. That's our prayer today. In the name of Christ, amen. Well, it happens all over the United States every single year. There is a high school reunion. How many of you have gone back for a high school reunion? Raise your hand. Okay, so many of you have been back to a high school reunion. At those reunions, there is always someone who has this photographic memory of all the events that took place in high school. You know who I'm talking about? You might be that person. And they want to relive those events in the conversation. Each time you talk to them, particularly at the high school reunion, they want to tell us, hey, do you remember the soccer game? We were playing Northmont. We were down 3-2 to two in the second half, and I kicked the ball in the corner, and you ran down, and you got the ball, and you centered the ball, and then I headed the ball into the goal. Do you remember that? And I'm like, no, I don't remember that at all. <laughs> there are always those folks who remember details, and after a while, it seems as if seems as if they are gaining life from all those details. You hear me? They're gaining life from that. That somehow they would prefer to live back there than to live where they're at right now. And so they like to retell tales of being in the homecoming court or serving on the, in the honor society or marching band or being on the stage or being the star athlete or the who's who of high school students in the United States, got the name in the hometown paper, they've got the scrapbook to prove all that. But years passed and they find little in the present to celebrate. 
Their high school days were their glory days. They peaked in high school. The best days are behind them now. And they have a hard time looking forward. It's always interesting when you're young, when you're in high school, in your early 20s, people talk about things like promise. She's got a lot of promise, you know. But when you retire, no one gets up to speak and says, you know, the retiree's got a lot of promise. I found out a few years ago, there's no such things as a precocious 50-year-old, right? But we like to sometimes remind ourselves in the life in the past. Friends, there is a sadness to me for people who like to live their life in the past. There is also a sadness when a city or a church wants to live their life in the past. When we come to Revelation chapter 3, what we have is a church that mirrors the city. And we've seen that a couple times now in our study. But it is probably no more true than here in the city and the church in Sardis. Let me introduce you to the church. Let's hop on the bus and take a trip to Sardis. You'll see Sardis now in your map. It's kind of right in the middle of Asia Minor there. <coughs> excuse me. There's a river that runs through there. It's about 60 miles west, or excuse me, east of Ephesians. It's about 35 miles south of Thyatira, where we were last time. The mailman is making a counterclockwise uh, delivery of the mail shows up in Sardis, opens up the book, and someone reads the entire book of Revelation to the city. city began probably in 1200 B.C. It has a glorious past. At one time, it was the leader in that whole region. It was the capital city of the Lydian Empire. But several times, the city was conquered. Let me tell you why the city was so strong. It's because it was so fortified. If you go to the next image... <clears throat> you can see this is the Acropolis in Sardis. The word Acropolis means the hill city. And there is a city, there was a city up on the top of the hill. This hill has actually eroded some from its original height, which was about 1,500 feet high. Go to the next image, you'll see this again. Here up on the top was where the city was built. There was a lower city, which we'll see in a moment, and an upper city. In the upper city, they built walls, and because of its height, it was an impregnable fortress on top of the city. The royalty for the city lived in the upper part of the city. The commoners lived in the lower part. But if there was ever a threat to the city, they would sound the trumpet, and the commoners from the lower part of the city would retreat up into the Acropolis and be fortified there and protected. However, legend has it that on couple different occasions the city was actually conquered now the story is a little fuzzy at times and there's some variations to it but basically here's what happened believing that the city up on top of the hill was so impregnable the citizens of the city retreated there as an army approached and they fell asleep while they were asleep the enemy sent a couple soldiers to scale the city walls 
And as they scaled the city walls, they found some cracks in the wall where the city uh, politicians had let the city walls crumble a bit from neglect. They were so proud, there's no way anyone could ever sack this city. We're up on the hill. And there the enemy soldiers climbed through those cracks. And while the city was asleep, she was taken by enemy forces. There are other stories that say that a couple of the soldiers in Sardis were actually awake during this time and watched the enemy scale the wall, mocking them as they did so, saying, there's no way you will ever conquer our city. But somehow, while the city was asleep, she was taken. If you go to the next image, this is an image from up on the hill down to the lower part of the the city. You can see kind of a grassy area right in the middle of that image. That's the marketplace of the city of Sardis, the ancient marketplace. In that marketplace, there was kind of like a strip mall, if you will. It was there that they, they bought and sold goods. You could go there, for example, and buy glass. Window panes were actually made here. You could exchange money here because Sardis was the first place ever to mint gold and silver coins. Because of that, Sardis was a very wealthy city. The other thing that you could buy in the marketplace, for which Sardis was very popular, was minerals that you could use to dye wool. You could buy clothing here. Boutique clothing was available here in Sardis. And you could buy the items to dye wool. So people would travel all over the world, come here to the marketplace, buy the things that they need, take them back to their hometown, and dye wool for that region and become very wealthy. Sardis was a very wealthy community. And I'll show you that in a moment. So if you can look at this image, you can see that next to that green kind of open space there in the middle of the uh, screen, just to the left there, you see kind of a building that kind of stands. We're going to see that building in a moment. Next image. This is the, uh, what's left of the Temple of Artemis. We talked about the Temple of Artemis in Ephesus. That was the largest Temple of Artemis, but there was also a Temple of Artemis here in Sardis. The Temple of Artemis had about 78 columns. Only two of them remain. The Temple of Artemis, though, was famously never finished, even though it was one of the largest uh, temples in the known world in the first century. But it was famously not finished. They just didn't complete it. They got a lot of it done, but there were a variety of reasons why they didn't finish it. Among them was an earthquake that occurred at 17 uh, B.C., destroyed the city, destroyed the surrounding regions. It was considered to be the most uh, horrific disaster in human history to that date. So there's only two columns left. Next image, you'll see those columns left of the Temple of Artemis. There was also a patron god of the city. The patron god was Sebele. Sebele was a, uh, a goddess that was the goddess of the moon, fertility, and hunting. And it was believed that uh, through her that the dead could come back to life. And we'll see about that. Okay, next image. This is the Jewish synagogue that was part of uh, Sardis. It was one of the largest Jewish synagogues in the world. And it was very ornate. If you go to the next image, you'll see the design that was part of this. This building was built just after what we are about to study in the book of Revelation. 
and a very august building. What you're looking at is actually called the judgment seat that was in the synagogue. We know it if you are familiar with your biblical history from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the judgment seat of Christ. That image is actually from these kind of seats that were in a synagogue where they held court and there was a judgment uh, pronounced. Uh, the next uh, image, back one, there you go. There you go, that's the building in the middle of that one image with the, the big open grass area. There's the building. That's the gymnasium that was built. Now, a lot of cities had gymnasiums. They didn't have that gymnasium. This is one of the largest gymnasiums in the known world at the first, in the first century. The courthouse was five acres where people could gather to exercise and to train and prepare for Olympics, all kinds of different things that took place. And it had running water. It had a sewage system that connected the houses and other places around there. The, the shopping that took place, they all had a sewage system. It was all part of this gym. Go to the next image. That's the bathhouse where running water was uh, available for those who were exercising. It was an elaborate building in the first century, as you could see. All right. Next image is really the, the scriptures that get us started. So here's what I want you to think about for a moment. I'm going to give you some, I'll give you some context. Now I want you to think about this piece. Because as we go through this text, we're going to learn a lot from what's not said. Let me explain. Like Thyatira, which we saw last week, Sardis had a profound and deep presence of trade guilds. We talked about that last week, where they have elaborate parties and they, they have feasts to, to idols and things like that. They had that also in Sardis, but there's no mention of it from Christ in this letter. Why doesn't he mention that? Like Pergamum, Sardis had the presence of the imperial cult, emperor worship, but there's no threats of martyrdom. There's no persecution in Sardis. Like Smyrna, Sardis boasted a very affluent Jewish community. I showed you their synagogue. Yet we find no opposition of the Jesus followers from the Jews. See, there seems to me, as I look at this letter in a moment, a disturbing silence of opposition. That is to say, the church had no adversaries. Hmm. In fact, there's no conflict with the unbelieving world at all in Sardis. No Jezebels, no fraternizing Nicolaitans, no Balaamites to contend with, no martyrs at the end of the Roman spear. In a world hostile to the gospel, somehow in Sardis, the church had become inoffensive. She had made friends. In a world that hates Christ and His followers, the world found a church not worth persecuting. The church had come to terms with everyone. And everyone was happy with the church. Except one. Chapter 3. To the angel, the messenger of the church in Sardis, write these words. 
These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Whoa. Here's the relevant identification of Christ. It is a rather mysterious description, enigmatic at its very best. We don't know what is all meant by these words, so let's admit that up front. These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God. That may be a reference back to chapter 1, verse 4, in a Trinitarian kind of formula that references the Spirit of God. Some have suggested it is a reference maybe to Isaiah chapter 11 that references the Spirit of God in different forms. The Spirit of understanding, a Spirit of knowledge, a Spirit of fear, a Spirit of a wisdom. We don't know. What we do know is that it is the reference to the Spirit of God. So here's the one who holds the Spirit of God and the seven stars. The seven stars reference back to the first chapter of Revelation as well. The stars are the messengers to each of these churches. So put it this way. Here's the one who unleashes the Spirit of God and has control of the messengers to each of these churches. The Spirit of God and the churches. The Spirit of God and the churches. The Spirit who gives life to the churches. I'm the one who oversees all of that. And what I desire and what we're going to see from this church is that Jesus wants the Spirit of God back into the church, that there might be, let me invent a word, that there might be a re-Pentecosting event in the church. Pentecost, the Spirit of God, comes down, fills the church, brings life to the church, that the church might be a witness to the world. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, you will receive power when the Spirit of God comes on you and you will be my witnesses. And the Spirit comes on them and they witness. Take that now in light of what we've just said about Sardis. Sardis is not being a witness. Sardis has no enemies. She has made friends with everyone. But she's lost her witness. And here is the one, the Jesus, the Jesus who sends the Spirit to give life to the church. And he holds those in his hands and he's offering them to the church. Typically, as you read these letters, After the relevant identification of Christ, there is the commendation. Chapter 3, verse 1, I know your deeds, you have your reputation. There's no commendation. Of the five churches in Revelation 2 and 3, two of them receive no commendation. They go right to confrontation. (laughs) Now a little later, there is a bit of a commendation when he says there are few people that have not soiled their clothes in verse 4. But what is Jesus to commend them for? They, They haven't stood up for anything. They haven't defended a great cause. They've not loved with any notable passion. They've made no sacrifice for Christ's name. They are a relic like their buildings. 
Everything about this church mirrors what I've just told you about the city. So here's the confrontation. Verse 1, I know your deeds. You have a reputation. There it is. Of being alive, but you are dead. Notice the next words, verse 2, wake up. You put all that together? Church, you've got a name. You have a positive reputation with those who hate me. You follow? You have a positive reputation. It's a name. It's only a name because in reality, you are asleep. You are dead. Wake up because the enemy is coming, scaling your walls and is penetrating the church. And you're doing nothing about it. You follow? That's, you see how the city and the church... Oh. How great are the glory days of old. You were once a great, fortified church. But you have fallen asleep, friends. I know your deeds. You have a reputation for being alive, but you're not alive. You're dead. What a contrast to the church in Smyrna that is dying and persecuted, and yet Jesus says you're alive. It's a dead church, a sleepy church, and of course, the dying church. Of course, a dying church, that doesn't mean that they're old. They're all senior citizens, and the pastor's about to retire, Right? It's not that the church has grown old. It's that the church has grown secular. She has a great reputation, but it's only external. The buildings look nice on the outside, but there's no life on the inside. A few years ago, I had the privilege of uh, going to speak at a church outside of the state of Minnesota, and I decided it would be a good opportunity to take my family, so we went and we camped that weekend, and Sunday morning we got ready at the campground. Always a pleasant joy when you've got four children. <laughs> Do you remember that old Commodore song, Easy Like Sunday Morning? They weren't going to church with kids when they wrote that song. So we got our kids ready at the campground, and we headed over to this church where I was going to speak. We walked in the lobby, and we looked around, you know, it was, you know, 30 minutes before church started, and I mean, there is no one around. So we, you know, the family kind of huddles in the lobby, and I kind of wander and finally find somebody. I am friends with the senior pastor of that church. He went to school with me. I know, I know him, right? So, hey, good to catch up. Good to see you. What's happening? What do you need from me? Oh, I just do this, and you know, we put the microphone here, and we get all set up, and church happens. And he gets up to read scripture, and he reads the long scripture, and it's not the scripture that I'm preaching on, so that was, I'm like, oh, okay, well, we could have coordinated better there. And I get up to speak, and uh, it, uh, it was the closest thing to a dead church that I've ever experienced. They didn't laugh at my jokes. That's one indication, I'm sure. 
The only people laughing at my jokes was my family. But they needed a ride home, so they had to laugh, I figure. But We got back in the vehicle after that, and my kids wondered. My kids are wondering, what, what is that? What, what was that gathering all about? About a year later, it was determined to close the doors to that church. Years earlier, the church had closed their hearts to God. Which brings me to a question. How does a church or a person which once burned brightly for Jesus become only a smoldering ember? How does a church or a person who once burned brightly for Jesus suddenly come to the place where Jesus would say something like this, you have a reputation for being alive, but you're dead, wake up. The answer to the question, I think, stay in the text. Where have we been in the last few weeks? Well, we've been over in Ephesus, and we remember that Ephesus, their love had grown cold, and they had forgotten their first love, and the Spirit calls them to remember their first love. That's why we do communion monthly. We've got to remember Jesus, right? But if you move past the call to remember, you end up in Pergamum or Thyatira where you're compromising with sin. You know, rationalize that sin away. It's not that big a deal. The call to Thyatira and to Pergamum is to repent. Press through that call to repent. Press past the conviction, grit the teeth, and before long, you're dead. You're living in Sardis. No life, animating worship, a shell of existence, a spiritual graveyard. You have all the structures of life. You've got a building, you've got worship services, the hands are raised, there's no life. There's no power in the prayers, there's no conviction, there's no victory over sin, there's no witness, there's no fight for injustice, just potluck dinners, yes. Comatose Christianity is what one person calls it. (coughs) Take the vitals, used to be alive, not anymore. They heard the call, but they refused to repent. I understand in Texas, there is a statement that says this, big hat, no cattle. You ever heard that line? Big hat, no cattle. Here's what it means. It means people who talk a lot and have a lot of empty boasts about their uh, farm, but they don't have any cattle. They have a big hat, (laughs) looks like they're important, they don't have any cattle. Big hat, no cattle, the Christian version of that in Sardis is big building, no life. So Jesus presents five staccato statements in the imperative. Here's what you have to do, church. Because your reputation is you're alive. People are impressed with you outside the walls. 
But Jesus' evaluation is you're dead. Now, verse 2, first imperative, wake up. It's in the present tense, continual tense. Keep watchful. Destruction comes when you get careless. When you fall asleep at night thinking there's no way the enemy can get a hold of you. Stay awake. Verse 2 continues the next imperative. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. Do it now. There are cracks in the city wall that you think there's no way anyone can penetrate those cracks. You may be proud of the fact that you've got a little something going on. Strengthen what remains. Do some spiritual exercises. Strengthen the spiritual muscles. As he says here, For I have found your deeds, I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. What was going on with the temple of Artemis? They never finished it. Isn't that interesting? Here's this temple, ornate, beautiful temple to the goddess Artemis, and the city citizens never finished it. And now Jesus says, guess what? I look at your deeds. They're not finished. You're not finished either. Don't point the finger over to the people building the Artemis temple because you're not finished either. Verse 3, remember, therefore, what you have received and heard, remember it. Recall it. The simple gospel that there was a holy God who created us in His image. That we offended the holy God. We went rogue. There was a spiritual coup attempt. But God in His love and His wisdom devised a plan to rescue us from punishment that we deserved while He maintained His own just nature. So He sent Christ, the sinless man, to die on a cross and raise again from life so that we could share in His life. That's the gospel. Remember that. That's what it's about. Not the buildings and the programs. and Those are all tools. But if you focus on the exterior, you end up with a nice reputation, but no life on the inside. So remember, he says, and obey it and repent. There's four and five. Obey, repent. And then he comes back to this theme. But if you do not wake up, if you choose to stay asleep, that's something that's in your court. And if you choose to stay asleep and you don't wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what time I will come to you. I don't think that this is a reference to Jesus' second coming. For those who might be wondering, this is a conditional statement. If you do this, I won't come like a thief. But if you do not repent, obey, remember, wake up, strengthen what remains, when you don't do that, I'm coming. And it's going to seem like a thief in the night. It's not Jesus' personality. It's not His temperament to surprise people here. He's letting people know. It will seem like a thief to the people who are sleeping. 
It is saying something about our nature that it seems like a thief when he comes, not his nature. You know what I'm saying? Here's what I mean. <coughs> Have you ever tried to wake someone up gently? Someone's asleep, afternoon nap, they're dozing, and you walk up, tiptoe up to them, and you try to gently wake them. And then they just shock, you know, right? They're like, oh, oh yeah, yeah. It's the nature of the person who's asleep that causes Jesus' return to seem like a thief in the night. Not his nature. It reflects those who are asleep's nature. Verse 4. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. What was one of the things they were famous for? People traveled all over the world to do what? To get dyes to make their clothes colorful. Do you see the subtle way that Jesus is confronting the affluent church here? You have a few people in Sardis who have not dyed their clothes. They will walk with me, wow, dressed in white, for they are worthy. The white clothes, of course, a symbol of purity. It's the symbol of clothing worn at a wedding. What is Jesus saying? This is what he's saying. Those of you who are asleep, wake up and renew your vows with me. Would you remarry me? Would you do that? Would you come back into a covenant relationship with me? We've been a, talking at times about the marriage relationship for good reason. The Bible uses the marriage relationship to reflect our relationship with God. Here it is once again. We've talked about those relationships where the marriage relationship where it's grown cold. Oh, it might be polite and civil and you know, it might uphold the reputation for the sake of the kids, but there's little love in that relationship. And one of the spouses, as I said earlier, one of the spouses comes to the apathetic spouse and says, do you love me? Remember that question? Do you love me? To which the apathetic spouse shows up and says, well, of course I love you. Here it is. I've got a ring. I've got a marriage certificate. What more do you want? To which the other spouse says, no, no. Those are the artifacts of our marriage. What I want to know is, do you love me now? And I hear Jesus to us today. Christian, do you love me? You say, Lord, you know I love you. I was baptized. He says, no, 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 no. Do you love me? He said, Lord, you know I love you. Here's my membership, church membership certificate. He says, no. Do you love me? Lord, you know I love you. Look at my leadership position at church. I pass out the programs. He says, no, no, no. Will you renew your vows with me 
because you love me now. Verse 5, Jesus says, He who overcomes, that is, he who repents, wakes up, strength, all those verbs, right? He who does that, he said, like them, will be dressed in white. They'll be in the wedding. And I'll never blot his name from the book of life. There's a permanence to the relationship when we renew our relationship often with the Lord, but will acknowledge, this is what I'll do, I'll acknowledge His name before my Father. Will you, Jesus, take this church to be your bride? I do. You follow? Put it in the context. Jesus will acknowledge His vow to you in marriage when we repent and wake up. And then he closes, verse 6, He who has an ear, let him, let him hear what the Spirit says to Gateway Church and churches general, right? This is for the churches. Wake up, church. Back to life. You need to know that Sardis is not a historical anomaly. There's not just one Sardis. Sardis may be any current reality of any congregation, of any person. So today, alive or dead? Asleep or awake? It is said that a polar star, that the light from a distant polar star takes 33 years for its light to reach the earth. That means it is possible for the star to burn out entirely and for 30 more years we continue to see the light from that star. Is this true of our light? Are we seeing a remnant of a life once strong with God? Did our flame go out years ago and are we still just seeing a flickering ember from a flame long extinguished. Let's pray. I don't know where you are with the Lord and what you walked into this room thinking about your relationship with God, but if in today's communication with God, His communication with you, if there is a sense that He is speaking to you and saying, wake up, oh, what a dangerous thing it would be to walk out of this room without waking up, without renewing vows with Jesus, without repenting and strengthening what remains. So I encourage you, spend some time with the Lord. This stuff at the end of the service is eternal stuff. Don't escape without dealing with the Lord. Light the fire again. Make sure that the light 
is not a reflection of a light long burned out. So have a quiet moment. Maybe talk to a friend. Maybe come forward and have someone pray for you. Those are options, but I urge you, be faithful with what God has said to you today. And now, Lord, thank you that your word is true for us today, that you are God who challenges us to wake up, that you don't just cast us off. You could have just said to Sardis, no more, but you give us time to repent and come back and renew our vows with you. Would you be gracious to us, speak faithfully to us, and help us to have courage to respond? And may we now walk from this space with light that burns brightly, with love that is fervent and strong. May we be your witnesses. May your Spirit infuse life in us again and again and again to serve you. We go in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Amen. Go in God's peace.